If you have your Bible, if you'll take it and turn today in the book of Ezra, in the book of Ezra, chapter 10. We have made it all the way through these 10 chapters, amen? If you thought there'd never be an end, we've made it, amen? We have charted our way through this sermon series this summer, and uh, boy, it has been rich, hasn't it? Uh, it has been some uh, a deep well to draw a lot of strength from. Also, as we have gone through this, we've been looking at it uh, for the steps of revival. What would it take? You know, Pastor Ralph and I were discussing just this morning. If you look up the word revival in the dictionary, it'll say things like a series of meetings with great preaching. Uh, it may say something like a set time, you know, to hear from God or something of that nature. But what it really doesn't define is what the real definition of revival is. I think the great revivalist Vance Havner put it this way. He said, it's the church falling in love with Jesus all over again. Gypsy Smith, the revivalist, put it this way, days of heaven on earth. Why are we not experiencing that? And I believe it's because a lot of times we have found a substitute. We have substituted it. Because the thing about hearing from God and a mighty move from God is that it's hard work. It's sacrificial and it costs us something. Matter of fact, if I had to give you a title for this sermon today, I would title it Counting the Cost. Because before you purchase something, before you go on vacation, before you take a new job, before you uh, college students decided, am I going to go to LC, you counted the cost and you said, can, I, can the sum of that equal victory for me? And then when, when, I, when I do obtain the victory, is the victory worth the cost? Is the victory worth the cost? TJ was talking earlier in worship just about how we want to throw our hand up and say, boy, there's nothing I can do for that child. There's nothing I can do for that marriage. There's nothing I can do for this job. I, there's no way. And many times it is a way, but it just costs a lot. Amen. And when we look at the revival that broke out, that turned a nation around in this passage of Scripture, we find out that it cost a lot. That it was a costly investment for the Word of God to revive in the land of Israel. Now, you may remember at the beginning of this book that the children of Israel were living in bondage. They were living under a pagan king. They had been there for 70 years, but God raised up a man named Cyrus who said, I want you to go back and be able to worship your God. I want you to go back and be able to worship your God. They had eradicated the worship of God in every sense of the way. Kind of like it is today. The worship of God has been just about expelled everywhere except in his church. And what the world has been trying to do is to force the church back in the box. To force the church back in the walls of sheetrock. Because inside the sheetrock walls, it's insulated. And they can't make a difference. Just yesterday, Brother Mike, on the way back from one of our excursions on the men's trip, was telling me about a 90-something-year-old man who had been an alcoholic all of his life, and he received Christ as his Savior. 
And God saved him sober in that instance. And then just a few moments later, a few days or weeks later, his wife, who was of the same generation, same age, came to him, who was also a Jehovah Witness, came to him and said, what happened to my husband? Transformation. You see, when a life has been transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the power of the life of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, it puts off an oar. It puts off a fragrance. Matter of fact, Paul, writing in the church of Corinth, put it this way, to those who are, who, for those who are being saved, it is the fragrance of life. But to those who are perishing, it is the stench of death. So when those who are walking in a state of revival, a life of victory, are walking through the streets of our city and they encounter somebody who is perishing and has never known the salvation grace of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden it's a foul odor they're putting off. And that's why the world is trying to force the church back inside the sheetrock because the world thinks we stink. Is anybody picking up what I'm putting down? But all of a sudden when you come across a believer, whether they're from Peru or another nation or, or across the city or across the street, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit in you identifies with the Holy Spirit in them and boom, just like that, it's a cataclysmic event where the Holy Ghost of God takes over and I mean it just smells good, doesn't it? It's the fragrance of life. And so we live in a state where our world is in a position where we need the power of God. We need revival. We need God to move. But the problem is it costs us something. We're wondering why our country isn't experiencing a move of God. And we say, God, how long will it be like this? Lord, how long will we have to walk through these conditions? What God is looking for is some man of God, some woman of God, some college student, some high school student, some junior high student to rise up and say, I am in love with Jesus and I am unashamed of the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Amen. The crazy phenomenon is driving everybody absolutely insane is the Trump phenomenon. And whether you like him or hate him or love him or whatever you want about him, why, why is he rising to this level of popularity? Is it because he had the apprentice? No. Is it because he owns the beauty pageant contest? No. Is it because he's a billionaire? Well, he has a bigger microphone, amen. But I'll tell you the reason why. Because he's just speaking about a lot of things that has been driving people crazy forever. And people are saying, I've been wishing for a long time somebody would say stuff like that. Whether you like him or hate him, I mean, it's just where it's at. And what the church... Listen, all the other politicians, they'll tell you what you want to hear. But what our world needs today is hot-hearted saints of God that are willing to rise up and declare, this is the way, walk you in it. At the cross, if you'll bow your knee, where the blood was shed for you, you will have victory through Jesus Christ. Why don't we do that? Because it cost us something. It cost us something. It cost us something personally. You remember last week as they were preparing for revival, they'd been having this really nice sanctuary for 60 years, but yet no power of God was there because buildings don't bring power. 
Can I say it again, church? Buildings don't bring power. We think, oh, if we just had a bigger building, we could see the power of God. I remember as a boy, a transformational moment in my life, and we were revisiting this this weekend, was there was one old crazy man of God who took an old dance hall and turned it into a revival center, and there was nothing fancy about it. It was a matter of fact, it was a picture of, of poverty. But the power of God would fall upon that place. And as a young boy, I remember my dad dragging me to camp meeting. Amen. It's where you just grab a hold of God and say, Lord, we need you. And what we're looking for today, God's not looking for a big sanctuary. God's looking for a broken people who are willing to get down on a bended knee and say, Lord Jesus, I need you. Lord, I've counted the cost and you're worth it. You know why you don't buy that car? You know why you don't buy that car? Because you realize it's not really worth it. I told my wife this. We've been looking for a, another home because for some reason we've outgrown it. Amen. And, uh, I mean, it's tight in every corner in our home. And we, just the other day we were driving down the road and I said, you know, I know we need a new home. I know I want a new home. But you know what? I really don't want to let go of our down payment. And I think about that, amen? That's why the world loves us to use plastic and write checks because you don't feel it. But when you let go of cash, when the cash leaves your hand, it's easier to count the cost. Are you with me? And I'm like, oh, Mo, I know we need it. And so what? I'm, I'm just torn. I'm like, do I want to hold on to the, the down payment or do I want to let go and have something else? And where we are today is we've got to count the cost and say, Lord, is revival worth it? Lord, is the transformation of my city worth it? Let me get a little bit closer to home. God, are my children worth it? Oh, somebody hear me out there. Is my children worth it? Is my spouse worth it? Is my home worth it, God? I'm going to read you a couple of scriptures here. We unpacked chapter 9 last week and we, they examined and they realized that there was a problem because there had been a bunch of intermarrying. And in the Old Testament, that was a huge problem. God had completely commanded them not to do that because they began to intermarry and pick up other gods. And now in chapter 10, I mean chapter 9, they came together and they realized that God said there's a remnant. That he had preserved a remnant in the holy place to bring about revival. But in chapter 10 and verse 1, here's what it says. While Ezra prayed and confessed, weeping and falling face down before the house of God, and an extremely large assembly of Israelite men and women and children gathered around him. What was the first cost? Humility. The first cost was humility. That the man of God had to be willing to go through the process of separation for consecration. The consecration it means something set aside to glorify God. The consecration of act of worship and those things. Talking about sacraments and those things. They'll say, well, you know, the Catholic Church especially, that's been consecrated. It's been set aside. To be given un back to God. 
And so the first thing that had to happen was that Ezra realized that in the throng of the assembly of people, that he realized, you know what, if I want to see revival break out, if I want to see the restoration, let's get a little bit closer to home, because that's the real word we're looking for. That's the title of our sermon series. God, if I want you to restore my home, if I want you to restore my, my, my reputation, Lord, if I want you to restore my marriage, then Ezra had to be willing to get up in the midst of the assembly and say, I am willing as the head man to be separated, to be consecrated back to God. When it says there was throngs of assemblies there, but nobody else was repenting, only Ezra was. What was the cause? Snickering, sneering. Who sent this old fuddy-dud over here? We've got this brand new sanctuary, 60 years old now, but it's like brand new because it's never been used. We've got all this stuff, and now we get some old radical old man who's in here trying to tell us, doesn't he know the times have changed? Doesn't he know things have changed since we went into Babylon? What's this old man talking about? And that old man Ezra rose up, and he didn't care though none going with him. Are you out there, church? He was moving forward. It wasn't about his sister or his brother or his spouse or his children. It was about Ezra individually being consecrated for the glory of God. I'm telling you, there is hope in America today, and the hope is in Jesus Christ. But the hope in Jesus Christ will only come when we, as individual men and women of God, leaders of our community, leaders of our home, leaders of our classroom, leaders of our team, will rise up and say, I am willing to be consecrated. You may remember the athlete that drove everybody crazy, Tim Tebow. Isn't it amazing that if you get out on the field and you stand up for God and you honor God, just honor God, just single yourself out to be consecrated back to God to say, Lord, I just want the whole world to know. I'm not trying to make the whole world do what I'm doing, but Lord, I want to be consecrated for you. I want to be separated for consecration. All of a sudden, that's craziness. But now all of a sudden, if you want to change your genitalia and you want to become somebody else, all of a sudden, that's heroic. Matter of fact, we will give you a whole TV show about you because it's courageous to be separated for carnality is courageous. To be separated for godliness is insanity. Ezra rose up. You know what's driving them all crazy now is Chip Kelly said, I just think there's a little bit of potential in that boy. I, I, I think there's a little bit of potential in that boy. I, I think we're going to just call him back up and see what we can do. And, you know, it drove him crazy. Oh, no, they, we had that dude beat down. We had him beat down. He would never be a player again. But you know something that happened in Tim Tebow's life is that God did something in him that man couldn't take away. And when the world said, we don't want you anymore, he didn't throw in the towel. He didn't quit. He kept practicing. He kept preparing. He kept waiting because God made him a promise and one day this old crazy coach said I believe we'll just give him a shot and they're like oh my goodness we had that dude beat down 
We had that dude beat down and there was no victory left in him. He had been relegated to just sitting at a bench talking about the game and not being in the game. And it drove him crazy when he said, I believe I'll give him a chance. And it drove me more crazy when he pranced into the end zone the other day. Wait a minute, he can't do that. He's a failure. When you're willing to be separated, to be consecrated back to God, to all the other athletes, sign big contracts, squandering their money, going broke, shooting up, playing around. Tim Tebow takes his money and is building hospitals in the Philippines. Being separated for consecration. And all I am saying today is that what God is looking for, God is looking for men and women, boys and girls that are willing to say, though none go with me, I still will follow. Then there, not only is there the separation for consecration, there's separation for sanctification. Sanctification means that you're set aside for the intended purpose. And I know you get tired of my cheese, uh, cliches about sanctification, but at this current moment, I am wearing a sanctified, I am wearing sanctified shoes and a sanctified watch. Because my shoes are set aside and they are being used for the purpose they were created for. To be on my feet. If they were on my hands, you would say, that's a crazy old preacher. We've got to get out of here. Somebody take him down to the loony bin. Church, you were saint, when you were created, you were sanctified for an intended purpose. First of all, the intended purpose was to glorify God. The spiritual sanctification. And the physical sanctification is that you're doing whatever he created you to do. I mean, if God created you to be a soccer player, then be a soccer player for the glory of God because that's what he created you to do. Even though nobody wants you to do that. I mean, listen, we, there's story after story of athletes who didn't make the cut, just like the other athlete I was just telling you about, but they remained to be consecrated to God and God honored them. There were some that didn't even be consecrated to God. They just worked harder. They, they followed the advice of their coach or coaching staff, and they didn't do anything about God, but they knew that inside of them was born an athlete. Inside of them was born the potential to be a victor and not the victim, and therefore they didn't allow the circumstances and people around them to discourage them, but they allowed it to be their launching pad to move forward. In verses 10 through 17, I didn't read you the other verses here. I got tied up preaching and just rolled over them. Got hung up on a large assembly and never came back. Amen. But it says in verse, the people also began to weep bitterly in verse 2. Then they responded to Ezra and said, we've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the surrounding peoples. But there is still hope. Would you underline that in your Bible? There is still hope. Don't you listen to what the world says. There's still hope for the people who are willing to be consecrated back to God. Yes, we've been unfaithful to God by marrying foreign women from turning the surrounding peoples. But listen, there is still hope for Israel in spite of this. Let us therefore make a covenant with God. And God to send away all the foreign women and children that we've intermarried with. And basically in verse 4, they come and it says, Get up, for this matter is 
your responsibility. Be strong and take action. Where does revival begin? With a responsible party who's willing to say, God, I'll be the one to take responsibility. The greatest tragedy of our day is the lack of responsibility. It's always somebody else's fault. It's somebody else's fault. We pass it along. We pass the buck. I mean, you know, the insanity right now is it's the gun's fault. The gun decided it. The gun woke up and ate its Wheaties, and all of a sudden, you know, the gun got in a car, and the gun went down the street, you know, and, and, and so we're wanting to blame the mass shootings on the guns when it really wasn't the problem wasn't the gun. The problem was the person who held the gun, and it's like, well, it's not really my fault that I went in a movie theater and shot people. It's really my mama's fault because she neglected me when I was a child, and my dad left me, and it's this whole process, you know. Well, it's not my fault that I ended up incarcerated. It's not my fault that I was fired from my job because I didn't show up. It was really my wife's fault because she kept keeping me out all week to try to promote her job. And it's this whole wicked process of the lack of accountability. Is anybody picking up what I'm putting down? And so in this passage of Scripture, the interesting dynamic is that they just rose up and said, we're the one that's done it. God told us not to intermarry, and we began to intermarry, and we've made a mess of this. And so the only thing they knew then was to be separated for consecration. And so, I mean, when you go over here into verse 5, it says, Then Ezra got up, and he took the leading priests and the Levites. And Ezra then went from the house of God, and he walked to the chamber. And he didn't eat food or drink because of the mourning that was happening. Then in verse 7, they circulated a proclamation, look at this, throughout all of Judah and Jerusalem that all the elders, I mean all the exiles, should gather at Jerusalem. And whoever did not come within three days would forfeit their possessions according to the decision of the leaders and the elders, and they would be excluded from the assembly of the exiles. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered in Jerusalem within three days on the twelfth day of the ninth month. And they sat in the square at the house and, and God and they were trembling going on because of this matter. And then because of the heavy rain, verse 10, then Ezra, then Ezra said, don't be unfaithful anymore by marrying foreign women and adding to Israel's guilt. Therefore, make a confession to the Lord. God of your fathers to do his will and separate yourselves. Separate yourselves from the surrounding people. Then all their assembly responded with a loud voice. Yes, we will do what you say. But we don't have the stamina to stay out here in the open. This isn't something that we can do be done in one day or two. It's going to take a while. For we have rebelled terribly. In this manner. We'll separate for consecration. There can be separation for the sanctification. And then there's separation for glorification. That God would be glorified in it. That God would be glorified. You remember last week we talked about undamming the wellhead. That the water might begin to flow again. Church, that's where we are. That's where we are. We need to get to the place where the water can begin to flow. So what was their sin? Well, their main public sin was that they had intermarried. And so under the Old Testament law, now stay with me and hear this clearly. Under the Old Testament law, 
they intermarried, and so in order to repent of that, they had to separate. They had to separate and go back. They had to go back and begin to restore under the law what God was doing and what God was saying. Now, I know what you're thinking, especially if you're watching at home or something. You're thinking, well, the pastor just gave me a right to divorce my spouse so I can get right with God. Well, if you were in the Old Testament, you probably could have. That's what they did. In the New Testament, it says as long as the unbeliever is willing to live with the believer, then you, you have to stay with them and let your chaste conduct may lead them to Jesus. But the picture here is that we have to be willing to separate from whatever it is that has caused the barrier between us and God. The barrier. What is the barrier? I don't have to rattle off a list. You already know it. It's that thing you struggle with. That thing that controls your money. That thing that controls your time. That thing that controls your talent. That thing that occupies your thoughts, that occupies your mind, that's the thing that's keeping you from being able to glorify God. The reality was they rose up and were faithful. They rose up and they were faithful. And they began to repent. They began to repent. Now the reality of it is that you can't, as the old country preacher said, you can't sow wild oats and pray for a crop failure. Because once you do something, with everything, with every action, there's a reaction. There's the consequences of it. Now, what is God wanting to do in your life? God's wanting to use you as the catalyst for something great. God's wanting to use you to make a difference. God's wanting to use you. Young people, at your new school, in your new grade, players on your new team, in your new city, at your new job, maybe with a new child, maybe in a new state, God's wanting you to be the catalyst. And in that new place, he's wanting you not to get entangled with the affairs of what's going on around you. Now, that doesn't mean you don't participate at work. It doesn't mean you don't participate on the field. But what it means is that while you are participating, while you are in the process of participating, you remain separated and you live differently. Remember what Gandhi said. If it wasn't for the Christians, I'd have probably become one. And that the world looks at us and we say, there is a difference. There is a difference. In order, in order to restore our city. In order to bring about the moment of restoration for our city, for our state. It's going to take some men and women that are willing to be separate. To live separately. To live differently. To just live holy. Now, let me close with this. That doesn't mean you've got to go into the monkery. It doesn't mean you've got to seclude yourself. It doesn't mean you can't go watch movies anymore. God's not trying to save you from the movies. He's trying to save you from hell. Amen. 
It doesn't mean you can't go to a restaurant. It mean, listen, it means that you, when, when you grasp a, a restored life, you're not looking at what I can't do. You're looking at all what you get to do. You get to diffuse the fragrance of God, which is the fragrance of life, everywhere you go. Amen.